the book of Revelation, chapter 3, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. We come to the last of the seven churches in which we have been looking at not really an exposition of the whole passage, but we have been looking at the attributes of our Lord that is the answer to the church's need. You examine those attributes, you read the needs of the congregation, or you read the needs of the exhortation of the congregation, as in the church at Philadelphia, And you realize that He is giving to us, as the people of God, specific attributes that are necessary for us to repent and turn back to Him. And I was sitting here thinking, what would it look like if the Lord said to the messenger of the church in Richmond, Faith Memorial Baptist Church. I say to you, what attributes would He say to us that we need to shore up around? I didn't really go any further than that than just to think about that. Because every church has its immaturities, every church has its deficiencies. And every church has its needs. But I kind of wondered what he would write, and I would hope that it would be better than this church. Okay. So Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, The beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes... I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Christ 
<clears throat> is, as it were, standing at the door and he's knocking. What is the sound of the knock? It is his voice. I'm standing at the door and knocking. If any man hear my knock, no, if any man hear my what? My voice. And opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. This church <clears throat> was in a world of trouble, literally. They were worldly. Jesus himself says <clears throat> in verse 19 those who I love, I reprove and discipline. So, did he love this congregation? as bad as it were, and as unregenerate as some of them were? The answer to that is yes. And of course, in some ways, he needs to say, verse 19, that those whom I love I reprove, because you can imagine how a congregation who in their mindset says, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, you can imagine how a congregation would react to a letter being proclaimed from that pulpit that says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. That sounds terribly offensive, doesn't it? Or if they said, you are wretched people. You are miserable. And you are impoverished in the sight of God. And you can't see. And you're not even clothed with righteousness. Can you imagine how that would go over? And then he says, those who I love, I reprove and I discipline. In other words, folks, Christ saying that to this church was a loving statement by God. Amen? It was a loving statement by God. Just like he, the rich young ruler who came to him and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And of course he says, <clears throat> you know the commandments, and he named the second table of the commandments, and the man says, I've kept all of these. And the Bible says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. Meaning the next statement is a loving statement. Go, sell all that you have. <laughs> Could you imagine how offensive that would be? Give it to the poor. Take up your cross and what? And follow me. And the man did not take that as a loving statement. The Bible says that he walked away grieved. And it tells us why. Because he had many riches. Folks, the only statements that can come from our Lord are loving statements. He's a God of love. Even if we ourselves don't perceive it that way. Even in the destruction of the lost, that is a loving action because He who loves perfectly cannot stand that which is imperfect. He loves 
And the answer to this church, beside the fact of what He's already communicated to them, is given to us in verse 14 in His attributes. He is saying, as it were, look at me. I am the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now as we look in our New Testament and we think about this church at Laodicea, this church is mentioned in other places in our Bible. You can probably think of one, and if you are an astute student, you probably can think of another book. One of the books, 1 Timothy, if you go to the end of that book, some manuscripts, and this is true in the King James Version of the Bible, at the end of that book, there is a subscript written at the end of 1 Timothy. And it says, the first to Timothy was written from Laodicea. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. That's why in modern translations, guess what? They don't have the subscript in there. But the fact is, is that historically there has been that subscript that has moved around and was moved around with this. And folks, isn't it interesting that if we assume that subscript is accurate, that Paul is writing this from Laodicea to Timothy, isn't it interesting that Paul closes the book of 1 Timothy with this? Instruct those who are rich in this present world. Now what was one of the characteristics of the church at Laodicea? They said we are rich and we have need of nothing. I don't know if there's a connection there. But that is coincidental. Paul says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. Were the Laodiceans conceited? Or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Timothy, instruct them with their wealth to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. That sounds like what's being instructed in Revelation, isn't it? You come by of me gold, refined in fire, so that you might have true wealth. Again, I don't know if there's a connection there or not, but it is fascinating that if it is so, if the tradition is right, that Paul concludes this epistle to 1 Timothy saying, I'm writing you from Thessalonia, from Thessalon, uh, excuse me, Laodicea, and I'm closing this out with instructions for the wealthy in uh, Ephesus. Isn't that amazing? 
What is the other book in our New Testament where Laodicea is mentioned? You probably already know this. It is the book of Colossians, and I want us to turn there. In Colossians chapter 2, and in verse 1, Paul's writing to this church at Colossae, and he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at where? Laodicea. So is Paul wrestling in his spirit about the events that are going on here in Colossae and also at Laodicea? The answer to that is what? Yes, he is. And folks, not only is he concerned about it, he tells them, if you go to the end of the book of Colossians, chapter 4, and you look at verse 13, he actually says to the Colossians that they are to take this epistle and they are also to send it to Laodicea for them to read. He says in Colossians chapter 4, verse 13, For I testify for them, <clears throat> for I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and at Heropolis. Then he says in verse 15, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea. And then he goes on in verse 16 and he says this, When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans? And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from where? From Laodicea. Everybody see that? So Paul has a great concern. And part of his concern, no doubt, involved some of the things and some of the truths that are written here in the book of Colossians, he had the same concerns for the church at Laodicea. And folks, if you look at chapter 4 and verse 17 of Colossians, you'll see this. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in, in the Lord that you may fulfill it. Many commentators believe that Archippus was the pastor of the church at Laodicea. And in fact, there is an early church father who stated that he was. Now, it doesn't mean that he was, but we do have some historical evidence that possibly this man, Archippus, was the pastor, or we could say he was the angel, he was the messenger at the church at Laodicea. And folks, if that was true, If Paul was having concerns about that church in Laodicea when he wrote the book of Colossians, this book was written around 62 AD. When was Revelation written? Well, it would have been in the 90s. Folks, what we know is whatever the disease was that was infecting this congregation in Laodicea, it had already begun 30 years earlier. And folks, it really does show the Lord's mercies and patience, doesn't it? 
And folks, it is interesting if you peruse the book of Colossians. In this book, you will find references and descriptions about Jesus' deity. What did He say in Revelation 3 verse 14? The Amen. The faithful and true witness. The beginning of the creation of God. And folks, if you take your Bibles and you turn to chapter 1 in the book of Colossians, and you begin reading in verse 15, where Paul says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Now note this. The what of all creation. Folks, that sounds a lot like the beginning of creation that's written in Revelation 3 verse 14. And he goes on and talks about this. Verse 16, For by Him, that is, He who is the image of the invisible God, that is, His beloved Son, for by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and they're all for Him. Everybody see that? He's the Creator. And that church at Laodicea was reminded 30 years later that He is the beginning of the creation of God. He's the source of the creation of God. But folks, not only is He deity and He is the source of the creation of God, look in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. He is also head of the body. The what? The church. Folks, did He create all things? He did. And all things are for who? They're for Him, not for us. They're for Him. But this one who is the beginning, he's the source of all the creation, also created the church. And he is the head of that church. And so he says, verse 18, he is the head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Everybody see that? He's declaring to the Colossian church that He is deity. And He's the beginning and the source of all things. He's even the creator of this unique thing called His body, the church. And 30 years later, He's reminding the Laodiceans once again on who He is. It also mentions in chapter 2, 
after he mentions his great struggle for <clears throat> the Colossae church and for those in Laodicea, he says in verse 3 that in Christ are hidden all the what? Why did he use that word? Well, the Laodicean church, they were interested not in these treasures. They were interested in monetary treasure. In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This one who is deity, who is God in human flesh, that in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And folks, there is also warning to this congregation at Colossae. If you look at chapter 1 again, and you look at verse 23, he says, If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard. He's putting a stipulation there, isn't he? That you're not to move from this. You're not to deviate from this. You're not to behold, as it were, any treasure or any deity and anything else other than Him. It's a warning to the church at Colossae. In chapter 2, in verse 8, he says to the church at Colossae, which is read at Laodicea, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Don't be moved away from this. There's warning that is being given here to this church. A church in which this epistle was written and it was to be read at Laodicea also. If you look in chapter 3, he says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. What's he telling them? Get your mind where? On Christ in the heavenlies. Where was the church at Laodicea's mind that we read 30 years later? It's on worldly riches and prestige and self-sufficiency and self-confidences. Folks, he's giving this warning. If you look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, <clears throat> he says, All right, church, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Folks, that church at Laodicea needed these warnings and exhortations. And evidently, evidently, the majority of that congregation did not give heed to it. 
So if we go to Revelation chapter 3, and we look at what is there in this church, what you will find is that it is, is the exact opposite to what Paul wrote to the church of, of Colossae. Verse 15, Christ knows their deeds. Folks, this church <clears throat> was a studied neutral type of church. In other words, were they hot? Were they zealous? Were they on fire? Were they frigid, cold? It was a studied, neutral position like many, many churches in our nation today. They don't really come out and say, we're full guns with the world. But they don't come out and say, we're against this either. It is how can we stay neutral? And of course, we could very simply say that the Lord's attitude toward this, if I was nice, is an upset stomach. He does not view this very kindly. In fact, He would rather you be hot or what? Cold. This church had a mentality that they were rich and had become wealthy and therefore they were self-sufficient. Folks, this church probably didn't have a need to raise money to do anything. They had all the money they needed. They had all the things that they needed. They had plenty in the savings. Most of the New Testament church that I'm aware of, it's month by month. Quarter by quarter. Year by year. That's the way the majority of New Testament churches operate. And folks, the Lord is so good to keep it that way. <clears throat> I used to be upset about that because I thought, well, aren't we supposed to have generous savings and all this type of thing? And I realized that all I wanted to do was get to the place where I had need for nothing. That doesn't mean that if you're a New Testament church and you have money in the bank that you're not right with God. You may say, well, we are wealthy, but we are needy. You could say that, right? But this church didn't say that. They were totally self-sufficient for whatever they needed to do. And my guess would be is they weren't doing much because they were a studied, neutral church. Neither hot nor cold. And folks, in light of all that, <clears throat> and in light of the attributes that He gives to us in verse 14, that He is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, in light of all those things, in light of what Jesus told them through the Apostle Paul, and now what He's telling them through the Apostle John, does it really surprise you that a church that thinks it has no need rejected what Christ said to them? They rejected it. 
did make sense to them to buy gold, <clears throat> to buy from Christ gold refined in the fire? Folks, what is gold refined in the fire referred to? What happens to gold when you put it in the fire? It's purified. How's the purification to happen? Through suffering and persecution. This church was doing all it could to avoid it. Now we shouldn't we shouldn't invite it. But we shouldn't what? We shouldn't avoid it either. Christ says, You come to me and buy for me gold refined by fire. And if you would be refined by fire like this and you would buy this for me, you would be wealthy. You would be rich. You need to come to me and get white garments so that you may clothe yourself. Perhaps their clothing was like Adam and Eve. It was fig leaves from the garden. But not the righteousness of Christ. Or the righteousness of the works of Christ. They weren't interested in that type of righteousness. But they were to buy from Christ the appropriate garments and to put eye save to anoint their eyes because they weren't what? They couldn't see. They were blind. Eye salve was meant to heal their sight. And folks, could the Savior heal the blind? You get a lost person and they start in their heart, start moving to Christ. They have this intense desire to see. I want to see. Have mercy on me, Son of David. Have mercy on me. And our Lord can spit on the clay and heal the eyesight, or He can put His hands right there and do it with His hands, or He could just speak the Word. But whatever it is, this church couldn't see. They were clothed with worldly garments. They had no deeds of righteousness. And they certainly were avoiding anything that would give them or drive them to the true riches that are in Christ. Miserable church. A lot of people look for that type of assembly. But what is the answer? Well, the answer is going back to who Christ is. And He says that He is the Amen. I love that title. (laughs) I just love that title. What does Amen mean? Well, some people say it means so be it. So you're praying in the will of God. You come to the end of the prayer and you say, so be it in His name. Some people view it, especially if you view it from a Hebrew term, the root of it means truth. So if you would say amen, when you closed out a prayer, you would be saying that what I'm praying and what I'm asking for is in truth. 
as it is in Christ Jesus. It's not just an appropriate ending on our prayers. But folks, He is the Amen. He is the Yes of God. If you want to see who God is, where do we look? We look at the yes of God. The amen of God. We look at the one who is the divine exegesis of God. The one of whom it's engraved. He is the engraving of God. He is one essenced with God. We're not allowed to dream up who we think that He is. We're not allowed to make up in our own imaginations and title it Christ. We've got to go to the Scripture to look at the yes, to look at the so be it, to look at the personification of truth as God is truth, and look at Him, and in Him we see God, God the Father. In Him dwells the fullness of the Godhead, bodily. That's who we look to. But folks, the New Testament also says this, that all the promises of God in Him are Amen. In other words, not only is Christ the Amen of God, in other words, the truth of God, the personification of God, the so be it of God, But He is also the one that when you view Him, He becomes the Amen to all the promises of God. All the promises of God in Him are never no. They're always yes. So be it. Isn't that encouraging for your prayer life? That if you pray according to His will... He hears you because all of those promises and all of those aims and all of those goals that we've been talking about in the book of Ephesians, they're all yes. It's never a no. It's never a we might make it there. Amen. So be it. And folks, if all those things are true, and they are, that He is the Amen of God. And that in Christ all the promises are Amen. He fulfilled them. He confirmed them. He is them. And folks, what should we be? Folks, what, what should we be as a church in this world if the Amen is the head? Well, the church is to be the confession of amen. In other words, when people view a New Testament church, they ought to see Christ in that church. And they ought to see the promises of God being fulfilled in that assembly. Is He the Amen or not? 
what is true of the head of the Amen is true for the body of the Amen. That we are to be reflected of that imperfectly, yes. Growing up in those things, yes. One day fully complete because He is complete, yes. But if the world wants to see the so be it of God, they ought to see it in the church, in His body. And when you realize that, you realize that we fall far short of that. But I am thankful for the light that is seen. Right? We're a lampstand. We light up Him. and Make Him big. Our confession to others is that all the promises of God are Amen. Our confession to others is, if you want to see God, look at the Amen. And that's what this church at Laodicea needed. They needed to know Him as He really is, not as they thought that He was. Secondly, He is the faithful and true witness. I remember when I came to Christ, <clears throat> one of the frustrating things that I realized early in my latter high school years and beginning college years was that <clears throat> whether it be mathematics or science or engineering, that it all was phony. It was all phony. I love mathematics because I thought it was an exact science. And I realized that it is kind of fuzzy. When you get into higher mathematics, you realize it's kind of fuzzy. My high school calculus teacher got a PhD in mathematics, and her PhD paper was this, devise a new mathematics system. So she came up with one. I realized when I was in engineering and we had to build things, we had all these formulas and everything, but at the end of the day, we really weren't sure about the formulas and we just doubled everything. So if I wasn't sure we'd have a formula for this wall and these joists and the stresses that are coming down at critical points so that the ceiling doesn't fall down on us. So you look it up in the table and you realize we just kind of doubled it because we're not really sure the exact point. You just double it and that way you're sure. You're just sure. And Christ in His goodness brought me to a place where I could find a true and faithful witness. No shadow of turning. Forever true. What He says is. No ifs, ands, or buts. It's absolute. It is faithful. That is, it will happen. And He is the true witness of all things, both of God and of His truth. 
And what a blessing it is to realize that I can open my Bible rightly understood and walk away on a solid rock. Not a if, not a maybe, not like let's just double it to make sure, not like science says do this and 20 years later says don't do this. This is the surety. And folks, you realize that part of the Ten Commandments was this command. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Did you hear that? Why didn't he just say, you shall not lie to your neighbor? Why, Why did he word it this way? Folks, that commandment goes way beyond just mere lying. In any avenue of our life, the way you think, the way you feel, what you say, what you do, if it's not a true witness of God, it's sin. Now think about that. You know, the world's got it white lying, gray lying, black lying. If you and I are not accurately reflecting Christ, it's sin. And folks, you and I all know that if it was our righteousness, we're doomed. We're doomed. You have broken that commandment Every breath people take. But He's the true witness. And Jesus would say, if you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. He is the true witness to what a fully human ought to look like. I don't mean His facial features, I mean His actions and speech. If you want to know what we were originally created to be, look at Him. He's the second what? He's the second Adam. And if we want to know who God is, we look at Him. And folks, the implication here is that the church at Laodicea was not imaging Him correctly. The church was being a false witness. That's a terrible indictment of a New Testament church, isn't it? And lastly, and we've already hinted at this, He is the beginning of the creation of God. He is the source. He is the one from whom all creation proceeded through. He is the one that it all came from and He is the one for whom it is all for. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the ending. Folks, if He's the source of everything, this church has great hope. 
because they can buy from Him. <laughs> Do you see that? They can buy from Him. If He's the source of everything, then everything we need can come from who? Him. And folks, the beautiful thing about this is that this is the one of whom we come to in, our, in the table. This is the one that we give our minds to. Our speech to. This is the one to whom we can say, I want to be conformed into your image. I want to, I want to be a true witness like you. In what I think, in how I feel, in what I say, in the things I do. I want people when they see me to see you. So since He's the source of that, He's the creator of that, He's the provision of that, all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom are in Him, then I can go to Him. If you need eternal life, you can go to Him. Right? Not going to get anywhere else. If you're in need of that life to be lived through you, you go to Him. He's the one that gives us the to be willing and the to be doing for His glory. If you want your heart to be made larger so He can fill it more, then ask Him, enlarge my heart that I may run the way of Your commandments. Ask Him. Because one day, all the heavens and the earth will be filled with the light of His witness forever and ever. And I can't wait to be there. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads.